thank you. Good morning. How are we? Good. Well, yeah, my name's R.D., and uh, it's really great to, uh, to be with you um, this morning. We, I was scheduled to come, I think, August 5th originally, uh, which I still am on the docket, and then uh, just they asked, is there anybody available this weekend, uh, this week, and it's one of those weekends I didn't have anything like I usually do at church, and I said, you know what, we'll just start it off early, and so if, um, hopefully it goes well, I'll be back in August, and if not, then <laughs> I'll just know, you know, that's the way of saying, that was great for one time, so... I'm happy to be here. Um, the text this morning uh, is going to be 1 Corinthians 13, uh, so you may have heard of it. It's one of the lesser-known chapters in the Bible. Uh, that was a, a terrible joke, yeah. 1 Corinthians 13, I mean, think of, I mean, Psalm 23, 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the Mount Everest, Romans 8 maybe, uh, John 3 of passages that you could take to a desert island if people could still know them in our culture. First Corinthians 13 is up there. And so I'm uh, at our church fellowship uh, where I serve as young adults pastor, which is everyone who's out of college and early 30s. Uh, so a lot of people, uh, young people, and then I also serve on the teaching team. Uh, so I get to teach throughout the year as well at some of our campuses. And so we're going through the book of Corinthians, the whole book, first and second chapter, uh, and so I thought I would just take um, something that we're already working through and preach on that and see what the Spirit has for us this morning. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 is a great, and it's, it's such a great passage. Uh, we could spend a whole year on it. Uh, but what I want to say at first is that I do a lot of marriages because I'm a young adult pastor, and so a lot of people come to me and say, will you marry us? And I say yes. And sometimes what they want to read in their sermon is 1 Corinthians 13, which is totally fine. But I didn't tell them, hey, before you read it or I read it, uh, I need to let you know that 1 Corinthians 13 is actually not about a wedding ceremony. It wasn't written. Paul didn't have a bride and groom in mind when he wrote this. And so I always tell them, if you want, I'm going to give you the backstory on it and put it in context. And then they're usually like, okay, we'll just pick Ephesians 5 or something else. Like, we don't need <laughs> the story. And so then I'm like, okay, well, so I'm trying to find the best way to do it. But it's a great passage for a wedding, but it's not primarily about a wedding. It's primarily for the church in Corinth and for us about the primary way in which we should live our life is a life of love. And it's sandwiched between two chapters that are on spiritual gifts, which was dividing the church in Corinth and still divides the church today, but not quite as much as it did. And Paul intentionally puts chapter 13 right in the middle of kind of some high-octane uh, disagreements, and he says, no matter what you're disagreeing about, no matter what you're talking about, you must do it in the manner of love. Otherwise, it's absolutely pointless. Right? It, it doesn't matter how right you are if you're not loving in your approach to people. And I love this passage, and so we'll just spend a few moments working through it. Um, there are three points to the message. If you like three-point sermons, then you're in luck. Uh, point number one, the centrality of love. Point number two, the nature of love. And point number three, the receiving of love. We'll really be spending time in verses one um, through seven, just for time's sake. Uh, but those are the points, centrality of love, the nature of love, and the receiving of love. Number one, the centrality of love is just in verses one through three. And if you look at verse chapter 12, verse 31, the end there, 
Paul talks about. He says, this is from the ESV translation, I will show you still a more excellent way. So he's talking about desiring the gifts, wanting the gifts, the gifts are great, but he's going to show us something even better than the gifts. A higher mountain, a higher road, which is the road of love that very few people travel on. And then he's going to launch into chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. This is verses 1 through 3. And the big um, message here is that love has to be central. What, what Paul is saying here is not that love is um, something over here and the gifts are something over here. He's saying not even that love is better than the gifts. He's saying that love must be the ingredient that makes up the recipe of whatever the gifts or whatever the thing is that you're about. It cannot be just added on. It has to be the main ingredient. Without love... Nothing else matters. Paul actually picks really amazing things that you think we'd want to be known for, right? I mean, he says, if I have faith to remove mountains, that's a good thing. Great to have faith that can remove mountains or move mountains or create mountains, whatever. And yet Paul says, if I have that level of faith, but I don't have love, then what's the point of moving mountains if I don't do it from a posture of of love. And what we see here is that Paul, what Paul's basically saying in verse 1 through 3 is the why. What's the motivation behind how we interact with people, behind how we do life together as a church with other people? What's the reason? Because we all know, we all know that there's a huge difference between doing things for, I'll put it this way, we, there's a difference between loving people for our sake to make us feel better and loving people for their sake, Right? Like, what's the end goal? Because it can, it can come across the same way. It can be the same actions. You can do the exact same thing for someone, and yet the motivation is totally different. As we know, Scripture says God looks at the heart, not just the uh, actions on the outside. So what's the motivation? And in Christian circles, it's so easy in our hearts to say, I'm doing it for love, but really it's so that I would be made much of. Right? I want people to see my faith that moves mountains. Not because I love them, because I want them to see how amazing my faith is. I know all the I know all the doctrine, right? He says, if I if I have all knowledge, if I divine all mysteries, like what's the whole purpose of doctrine is that it moves us in worship to the Lord, right? The end goal of knowing the Bible is not just to know the Bible; it's to know the God of the Bible, right? And we have a lot of people, though. I mean, I guess fewer and fewer, but still a lot of people who know a lot of verses of the Scriptures, but don't know the God who wrote them. And there's a massive difference there. Paul says knowledge is a good thing. I, I went to Dallas Seminary, got four years of amazing knowledge, studied every book of the Bible, studied from some of the best professors in the world. And you know my big revelation at the end of four years at Dallas Seminary was I don't know anything. <laughs> because the deeper I went, the more I realized I, I hardly had a clue about who God is, which was humbling and yet beautiful. And always and always and always, the motivation must be love. And so the que I mean, a question we can always ask ourselves is, are you motivated? Are you marked by love? Is, is, is this church, is this congregation, are we marked by love? By how we love each other, by how we love our, our world? Always one where we could say we can always grow in it. Every church can grow in it. 
right, here's a few questions to ask, um, especially for, this may be you if you're type A. I know a lot of young adults I work with are very driven. They're in grad school. Uh, they they want to get married, right? They have all these things they want to achieve. Um, and so I sometimes say this, if I, if I accomplish everything on my to-do list and am super productive <laughs> but have not love, then you're just a gong, <laughs> right? If, if you, to-do lists are fine, right? Productivity, there are books on it. It's better to be productive than lazy, right? Productivity is a good thing. Efficiency is a good thing, but they're not fruits of the Spirit. They're not the most important thing. If, you, if I accomplish everything on my checklist for my tomorrow, and yet the people I interact with don't feel any love or warmth from me, then it's not a win. If I go home because I could check every box, though sometimes it, man, it feels great to check boxes. Right? Ministry can be so messy because you're working with messy people, and you don't always see them come to any type of completion. That, I remember, sorry, I've been in ministry now eight years, so not that long, but my first year, I just remember thinking, seminary, Dell Seminary was great, but you're kind of in a bubble. <laughs> and then you go into the real world, and I remember just going home to my wife, and I'm 25 at this point, and I remember just thinking, this, like, this is so much harder than I ever would. These people are so messy, <laughs> right? And as God, you know, begins to tell me, right, oh, oh, okay, only these people are the messy ones, right? There's no mess in your heart, right? You're just like, you know, and God, do you, do you love these people, right? Or do you just want to fix these people? And those are two very different things, right? Two very, very different things. If I, man, if I personally sacrifice for the sake of others, but do it not for the sake of love, but for me, so people can see how much I sacrifice, it means nothing. It's meaningless, right? It's absolutely meaningless. If I'm fighting for the right cause, but with the wrong heart, amazing to be passionate about things. Yes and amen. But so often in the church, we're known, we can be known more for what we're against. How strongly we want to make a stand, and Jesus is somewhere in the background. And he's not getting glory for that. Don't water down anything. Don't have to be gray on anything. But it's the posture of our heart. Do people who disagree with us want to believe what we're saying? Or does our posture put them off? So they're never going to hear what we're saying, right? I know sometimes I'm like, I, but I'm right! <laughs> but it doesn't matter if no one else is, is even moved by it. Right? Is there a winsome approach to the way in which we're engaging very important issues? If I attend church and Bible studies and have all knowledge but do not love Christ, Jesus' famous words in Matthew 7 where the men come to him and say, Lord, look at all that we did for you. And Jesus says, I don't even know who you are because you didn't do it for me. You did it for you. Wow. Right? Attending church is good. Bible studies are good, but they will not save you. They will not save you. Right? Only the blood, only the blood will save you. Only the blood. And in southern religious world that we're in, there's so many people that are just in churches and they've never heard of the Savior. Isn't that amazing? And I can tell you so many people come to our church and they hear the gospel and they grew up in church and they'll tell me I never heard it. And I think, how is this even, what are you preaching on? What is the message? If not this, if not love, God's love. If I preach a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 with great power, but have not love. If I love preaching, 
to people more than I love the people I'm preaching to. God is not pleased. He's not pleased, right? And he knows the motivations of our hearts. He does. So number one, the centrality of love. Love must be central to everything we're doing. It must be central. That's what Paul says. Ask the question, why are you doing this? Second point, the nature of love. And this is probably the most famous part here and the most convicting. What, I mean, talk about working on a message <laughs> and feeling convicted. These verses right here. I'm just going to work through them. Paul has 15, um, 15 verbs here that he's going to work through. And, and the, uh, the Greek word here for love, you may have heard of it, is the word agape. Um, in the Greek in the first century, the two primary words used for love were phileia, which is brother-sisterly love, so Philadelphia, and eros, which is physical or romantic love. And these were the primary words that were used in the first century. Describe, when you would say, I love someone, right, you would either say it's brother-sister or it's, I, I, I have feelings for you, right? It's, it's an attractive love. There wasn't this type of service-oriented love that even really existed. Right? The word agape technically existed in the first century, but people, they basically whispered about it. <laughs> because the Romans and the Greeks thought it was weak. They didn't think it was strong. Why would you love someone that doesn't deserve your love? It makes no sense. And the word that Paul uses here, every single time you see the word love here is the word agape. And agape, it means this. Agape love is an act of the will, not just your feelings. It is an attitude and an action that seeks to serve others, especially the unlovable, the enemy, and the outcast, right? Eros love in our culture, it screams at us, right? Every movie, every TV show, it says, love someone that makes you feel great. Love someone that makes you feel amazing. And so it's conditional love. Oh, if they're beautiful, then I will love them. If they do things for me, then I will love them. So often my premarital counseling with young people, right, they fall in love, which is great. But I, I worry about if their love will be sustained because what's the foundation of it? Is it looks? Is it feelings? Is it emotion? And helping them walk through that can be challenging. Agape love, it whispers to us. It whispers. Modern love, it says, I love you because of how you make me feel. And agape love says that my love will make you beautiful. Do you know the musical um, Beauty and the Beast? Have you heard of it? Okay, two of you have. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, in the movie, my, I have twin girls who are four and a half. And so they kind of watch parts of the cartoon one, a little bit of it, mostly the songs. And now we're, they're on repeat, so it's all that I hear now uh, is Belle singing. And Belle, you know, her name means beautiful. And she loves this beast, right? And she loves him um, not because he's attractive, right? <laughs> I mean, he's literally a beast, right? He is not an attractive guy, not looking good, right? There's nothing in him that she's going to say, I love you because of how you look. I love you because of what you do for me because he actually doesn't even like her, right? He's, hurt. he's captured her dad. It's, it's not even good. And yet, what does her love do to the beast? Right, it makes him human. It makes him beautiful. And that's what God's love is like. It turns all of us from being beasts into beauties. God loves us not because we're lovely, but to make us lovely. To make us human again. To make us in his image again. To recreate us. Um, that's agape love. And you only truly find it in God's word, in God's heart. And that's the love we're talking about here. Verse 4, love is patient. 
I mean, need we say more? Need we feel more conviction this morning? Is there someone here who's saying, check, pastor, let's move on, got it. That's not my issue. Love is patient. In the Greek, the word for patience means long-suffering. Love does not have a stopwatch. Love does not run out. Love does not love someone and say, when you finally get like this, I'm going to quit loving you, right? Love doesn't have an agenda, otherwise it's not love. Right? Yes, you want to see God work in people's life. You want your love to change someone. But agape love says, I love you no matter what happens. I'm going to be patient with you. And our culture is built on impatience, right? And more and more, things are just like, if it takes me, you know, 10 seconds for something to load on my TV, if it does the whole, you know, circle thing, I just am like, why? Why is this taking so long, 10 seconds to beam something from outer space, basically? And more and more, I'm like, this is terrible. Let's get new internet, babe. And like just like the no, like in those small ways, it's funny, but in small ways, our culture is setting a new bar on patience and how impatient we should be. And yet, agape love is patient; it's long-suffering. Are you patient with those you love? Um, eros love is impatient; it's demanding. Agape love is patient. Love is kind. Kind is not the same thing as being nice. It's great to be nice, but far better to be kind. I think of kindness as a, a generous gentleness of word and deed towards someone, like a warm fire on a cold day. It just fills you up and sends you back out. The ministry of Jesus was exceedingly kind. He was always for the other person's good, wanting them to flourish and not flounder. Love is kind, serving others. Love does not envy or boast. Love does not look to others and desire what they have, right? So often I can be guilty of envy, right? Um, because I look to other people and I just can want what they have, right? And what you post on social media is just not reality, right? And yet it can seem like it. And so often in my heart I can just think, Lord, why don't we have that? Or why, why haven't you blessed us in this way? Why haven't you done this? You know what the root of envy is? Is it's ungratefulness. And the great remedy for envy is thanksgiving. Is thanking God for who he is regardless of what you have. Because everything you have, he's given you. And, man, the truth is he doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't owe you anything. And yet in grace he gives us, he gives us things. And so often I can just be envious and it, it reveals still my heart is still broken. I want that and love says no. No, no. But love does not boast. It does not boast in others. Literally in the Greek, this is great, boast means windbag. <laughs> love is not a, I wish they just would have used that. You know, love is not a windbag, right? Boasting in yourself, making much of you. And, and, and I think often we use this and say, okay, you know, we, we think of the extreme example of someone that only talks about themselves all the time, right? My wife and I call this person the topper. You know this person, right? You go, you go. You, you, you meet them, maybe downtown Knox or somewhere. You get pizza here locally. and say, man, this is really great pizza. And the, the topper, what they say is, oh, this pizza's fine, but let me tell you about my three months in Italy. Let me tell you when I went to visit where they make pizza. And you're like, dude, <laughs> no one cares, right? No one even, like, that's the topper, right? That's the person. That, it's always got to just, it's always, they're always just a little bit better, <laughs> 
right? Always just a little bit more. And so that, that's an example, but most people are not going to say, that's me. But here's another way to think about it. Boasting is inserting yourself where you don't need to. Boasting is having to be in the action. It's having to make a comment. It's having to be at the party. It's having, like if, if you're not there, it doesn't really count. It's fear of missing out. It, it's I'm boasting in myself by placing myself in places that I don't have to, but it makes me feel better to do it. Man, I can be guilty of that, boasting. I just, I like people to say, you know, sometimes, RD was there and it was great, and I like to hear that. <laughs> you know, and God's like, were you, like, who were you there for? You, your ego, or for other people? Like, why'd you have to be a part of that? Because you're boasting in yourself. And that's more subtle. It's more subtle, but it's, it's dangerous. Love is content, not envious. Love boasts in others, not the self. It boasts in Christ. Keep going here. Love is not arrogant or rude. Arrogance comes closely from boasting, thinking you have it all together. You're above others, right? To look to be, you know, what C.S. Lewis talks about as being, um, having snobbery. You just look down at other people because they don't have it together like you, especially religious people. It can be good at this, where for some reason you don't think you were saved by grace. I mean... I know that God saved me by grace, but he didn't need as much, right, as you need it, right? And that can be what happens sometimes. It can be what happens where, you know, you, you don't, um, you may not say it, but you think it. You think it. You think, man, I know I'm saved by grace, but I'm really not that. I mean, you know, Jim, my gosh. <laughs> me, and, and so often we have to just go back to and say, none of us, you know, are Humpty Dumpty. All of us are just fell off the wall. And only Christ puts us back together again. doesn't matter what type of conversion story you have. Every single one's a miracle. Because every single one of us, if you're a Christian in here, every single one of us was equally dead. Right? So maybe it's not as dramatic. But in, in heavens, it is. It is. And so Christians should be the most humble people ever because what we're saying is I don't have it together. That's why I have Christ. I'm being a part of a church because I need other people, not because I'm great. Right? No man is an island. Love is not rude. It does not dishonor others. We'll keep going. Uh, here, here we get to the, a, a big piece here. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not self-seeking, if you know that translation. And this is the heart of it all, right? Eros love says, our culture says, find yourself, right? And Jesus says, deny yourself. Give up yourself and find your life. Right? Our culture says, follow your dreams. And Jesus says, I've got something far better for you than your dreams. I mean, so I have this conversation with young people all the time. Just, i got to find myself. Happiness is me pursuing what makes me happy. And I say, it's not really. It's found in dying to yourself and living for others. That's where you find true joy and true contentment. That love does not insist on its own way. It's self-denying. This is countercultural. It's countercultural as it's ever been in our culture. Love does not insist on its own way. It insists on the way of others. Well, let's just continue with the conviction, okay? Uh, we'll just keep piling it on here um, in case anyone is not quite there yet. <laughs> My goodness. 
Love is not irritable or resentful. In the NIV translation, uh, it's not, not easily angered and keeps no record of wrongs. I love that Paul didn't just say love is not angered, but it's not easily angered. It's like, Paul, could you give us something? <laughs> like not even easily angered? Not even easily frustrated? So often I can get angry at the smallest things. You know why you get angry? Because there's this gap between your expectations and reality. And what often people fill in that gap with is their anger towards a spouse, towards a friend, towards God. I thought my life was going to be like this. I thought my marriage was going to be like this. And whatever gets inserted in that massive hole is going to determine a lot about the life you live. Man, there's so many. They're just so. It, maybe it's hidden, but I just I've met, especially with men, there's so many angry people. Angry at God, angry at the way things are, because their expectations of what life was about is so far out of balance from what the Bible talks about. And love is not easily angered. Not easily angered. Even a great sign of much. Even when you think you should get angry. You don't, right? You don't. Um, this is not talking about issues of, of injustice or, or cruelty, right? Th- those righteous anger is a different category from what we're talking about. That's a different sermon. This is just, e- just things that you, sh- you don't have to get angry about when we do. Pet peeves. Man. Love keeps no record of wrongs. What a call here. Love forgives. Lo- love does not have a ledger. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this may be the hardest one of all, and yet the most profound. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Man, I just think of my own family. You know, maybe you say, but you don't, you don't know my family, right? <laughs> you don't know my past, and I don't. But here's the thing. There's no asterisks by any of these. And oftentimes it's easier to be all of these things to people we don't know than people we do, Right? And yet Paul says this applies to Christians, it applies to everybody. Love keeps no record of wrongs, love forgives. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not celebrate anything contrary to God's law. It celebrates God's truth being proclaimed, celebrates what God is doing in the world, celebrates that, right? Now that doesn't mean that we have to be, you know, don't want to be hate-filled or wrongly judgmental towards people. But there's a difference between that and celebrating things which are contrary to God's will. We want to celebrate that which delights God, that makes much of God, not that does not. Lastly here in this section, man, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the nature of love. It bears, it believes, it hopes, it endures. It's not cynical or defeatist or downcast or negative. It loves regardless of the circumstances. That's that's agape love. Believes, hopes, endures, bears, trusting in the sovereignty of God. Not on my own power to love. What type of love is that? Oh, man. Not cynical. Now... Is there a more convicting series of verses in all of Scripture than verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13? <laughs> I mean, is anyone feeling like fantastic right now, feeling like the moral GPA is high? You know, I mean, just insert your name here, right? What if we just do this little experiment? This is fun. RD is patient. 
Our D is kind. Our D is not envy or boast. Our D is not arrogant or rude, right? I, I, there's no need to go on, right? Just insert your name there. And so, honestly, if you, if you read this in one way, if you, were to, if you were not a Christian and you're reading this and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is actually not even life-giving. This is, this is, this is um, devastating. Who can love like this? Why is this even in the Bible? This is going to make us feel bad, right? It's like reading the Sermon on the Mount. Who can live like this? And so if you read this in one way, you're going to leave it, one of two things being, oh, there's no hope for me, or you're going to try really hard to be patient this week. And that's going to work for about six minutes. <laughs> right? And so the last point is this, the receiving of love. How on earth can you and I actually love like this? Because this is not just in here to be a mountain that we can't even approach. Or for like elite Christians, whatever that means. God actually wants us to love like this. Um, and here, here's, here's my final kind of point here is this, the receiving of love. Here, here's what you have to remember. The Bible is not primarily about you and how you love others. The Bible is primarily about God and how he has loved you and how he has loved the world. Right? So this whole book of the Bible is not how you find your way to God. This whole book is about how God has found his way to you. And that's a totally different way to read it because here, the greatest commandment is what? Love God and love others, right? Yes and amen. I love it. Preach it till I die. Love God and love others, yes. But that's not the greatest truth of the Bible. Do you know what the greatest truth of the Bible is? It's 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. That's the greatest truth of the whole Bible. Not 1 John 4. Not that we love God, but that what? God loved us. The only way you can love God and love others is if God has moved towards you in love. Otherwise, it's impossible. The initiating love of God. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own agape. And the word in the Greek is agape. But God demonstrates his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? God did not die for you on your best day. God did not look at R.D. and say, R.D., morally amazing day. That's the day I'm dying for you. No. God said, at your very worst, I died for you that day. God knows, everything, God knows everything you will ever do in your whole life. And he still says, I want you in my family. And if he loved you at your worst, he'll always love you. Isn't that great comfort? That's agape love. That is agape love. Love, loving like that is not natural. That's why we need the Holy Spirit inside of us. You have to receive the love of God to give away the love of God. Jesus says to his disciples, he said, remain in my love, abide in my love, don't leave my love. Otherwise, what are we giving to the world? Our love? Our effort? No. The first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. It's love. Only from a transformed heart can we love like this? Paul writes about this in one of his beautiful prayers, Ephesians 3, 14, and then 17 through 19. Paul says this. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that you, the church in Ephesus, and us, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, may have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's saying you can't be filled with all God's fullness unless you are grasping his love more and more. Unless you grasp the Abba love of the Father, you, you will not be able to agape our world. It will be impossible. Paul, one of, his, one of his favorite prayers that I have for him, he's just saying, would, you, would we be a people that are daily grasping the height, the length, the width of God's love for us, receiving it, swimming in it? It's so important, yet so many of us don't do it because it feels awkward, right? How many of us, I at least, I think a lot of us like to give gifts instead of receive gifts, right? It feels awkward, right? I don't like feeling helpless. I've been in the hospital a couple times in my life, and at first, you know, it's kind of nice. You have a few people there, and then you just realize how helpless you are, and it's, and it's not fun. It's like, I want to do something. I don't like just receiving, right? And so it often is with God where we maybe receive for a moment, but then we want to jump straight into doing. And so our tank is empty because we haven't actually, we haven't created space in our life to hear from the Holy Spirit and be filled up with his love. And there are so many Christians who are just walking around on empty, the lights on. And they're thinking, I just got to love God more. I just got to love people more. Well, yeah, you do, but the only way you'll ever do that in a healthy way is by receiving his love. By receiving his love. And we struggle to receive it because of our independence. We don't like it. We're Americans. We have prayerlessness. Uh, it makes us feel uncomfortable. How do we receive God's love? I don't know. I don't know. Give me the steps. <laughs> D.L. Moody, speaking of D.L. Moody, in my, um, you know, an amazing man of God, my goodness, the things that God did through him. A um, man of prayer, man who had an intellect. And one of my favorite quotes from him is his church in Chicago burned down the Chicago fire of 1871. And it didn't stop him. He went to New York City and he was asked, he was trying to find, to raise some funds to rebuild a building because they, I mean, the church burned down. And he went to New York, and he's trying to ask people for money. And a few months earlier, he writes um, that there have been some women, some faithful, faithful women, who'd been praying for him and asking him if they could pray with him. You know, and at first, Yale Moody says, I was kind of like, I, you know, not, I don't really have time for this, right? Thank you for your sweet little prayers, but it's not that important, right? And eventually, he writes, he says, I finally said, okay, I'll pray with you a couple times. And this happened before the fire. And they were just praying for an awakening of God's love. And so the fire happened, he goes to New York City, and he's just desperate, and nothing's happening. And he writes this. He says this, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were now converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. It would be small dust in the balance. Then have you ever had... This is not going to happen every time. This is not normal. So we don't have to be like... I want this every day. That's not how God works. But have you ever in your whole life had a moment where you thought, God, would you just stay your hand? 
would you just stay your hand because I can't, I, I'm, I can't even bear it, the love. And you know when you experience that the most? It's when you walk through the valley. Um, I know when Jesus experiences the Father's love the most is in the garden. It's when he's sweating blood. And oftentimes God will lead us through the wilderness even though there's a faster way. Right? You know what um, God says in uh, the Old Testament? He says, you know there was actually a shorter way to the promised land? <laughs> Thank goodness they didn't have GPS. Right? They would have struggled even more, the Israelites. And God says, you know there was a shorter way, but the shorter way is not always the best way. I want to take you the longer way to test you and to reveal more of my glory and my grace to you. And so here's the deal. Um, if you want to receive more of his love, you have to let him love you in the, in the valley. Suffering is not an if, it's a when. As you all, I think, know well. Um, yeah, in our culture, we just think it's so wrong, and yet God says it's part of the plan. So I can love you the way that you may not hear any other way. I'll finish with this story. Um, you know, recently um, in my own valley, <clears throat> there have been many in my life, but probably a few months ago, my wife and I, um, we had moved houses, uh, and we moved from one house to another, and uh, this was in April or May, and we moved into this house, and it, it was a house that we loved. We, we've been there two months now, so we really love it now, but those first few days of moving to a house, you know, you just think, I don't think we did the right thing because everything is different, and every, it's a smaller house, a more cozy house, which we wanted, um, and, but we had to do all this work in it while we were living in it. And so we're sleeping in the, on this terrible cot in the guest room while they're working on our master. And it's a small house. So the master, everything that's going in the master is now in the living room and the kitchen. And our girls who are four and a half, uh, are just tearing up everything. And now they're right next door to us in the, in the other room, which my wife loves maybe more than me, you know, having them that close, but it's fine. And it was a compromise. <clears throat> and so I, I'm, I'm sitting there the first couple of nights, and I'm just like, you know, there's cobwebs because it's an older house. And I'm thinking, you know, as, as, you know, the dad, the husband, I'm like, this was a mistake. Like, we have moved into this house, and it's not great. And all this weight is on me because I'm thinking, what have I done? And at the same time, um, there are some just hard things happening personally, you know, in my life with members in our family, some sickness, some conflict, there's stuff happening in our church uh, with some people. Like, it just, it's one of those things where, you know, have you ever been in moments where everything's coming at once, you know? And you're like, now, Lord, this week, one more thing. I'm, th I'm, you know, at night, have you had the moments where at night you're sitting in bed and for every reason it always comes at night, you can't sleep? Because I remember just feeling the weight, the weight, the weight. And I just, you know, th it's, things just weren't happening. And like the, the house and ministry stuff was not going well. And it was just things where I was like, Lord, I'm, nothing's working right now. Like there's nothing happening. I just feel all this weight and pressure. And I'm just staring out, honestly, into the darkness. Because uh, of the window right by our makeshift cot. <laughs> looking out into uh, the night. And I'm feeling all this weight. And I hear a whisper. And I hear the Lord say to me, he says, R.D., I love you. And honestly, at first I was like, all right, <laughs> that's great, Lord. But I could really use some help with some things in my life right now. Like, I, I kind of knew that. Like, I know you love me. Amazing truth. 
but could you help me with some church stuff? Could you help me with some financial stuff? That would be actually really great. And this is like my mind goes into, yes, love, but help me. And God just kept saying, he just kept saying, R.D., would you let me love you, right? Right where you are. And I remember I started to get emotional, which I don't do very much. You know, I just am like, not really, I don't hear, I'm not that person that hears the Lord. Like he doesn't, that's just not. And I just remember thinking, Lord, right now, like everything in my life is just a mess. And I just felt the Lord say right now, right, right, right in the middle of the mess, I love you. And I just thought, I still am just barely getting it. <laughs> right? I'm still, I'm just barely, I'm just barely getting his love. Because I still think you'll love me when I do things for you. And he just says, when you're broken, when you're suffering, when you have the anxiety of the world on you, would you let me love you then? So you can love other people in the same way. That's agape love. That's the love of God. I'll finish with the end here. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, Jesus Christ, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Jesus Christ is patient. Jesus Christ is kind. Jesus Christ keeps no record of wrongs through the cross. Jesus Christ uh, does not say, my will, he says the Father's will. He lives out, 1 Corinthians 13. And if you and I are in him, then we have the power to love like that because it's his spirit loving us to life so we can love our world. Agape love. Isn't that the love the world's desperate for? Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Our Father, how kind you are, how loving you are, how gracious you are. Um, for new mercy this morning, uh, for just grace upon grace, I just pray for everyone here, wherever we are. Um, I know every single one of us, we need more of your love. And before we jump to loving others, would we receive the love that you have poured out through your son, Jesus, by the Spirit? Would we receive your love, Lord? Even in the valley, would we know you're walking us through the wilderness because you love us, not because you don't? I thank you that we don't have to look at 1 Corinthians 13 and say, if we just do that perfect enough, you'll love us. But that your son lived that perfectly for us. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has loved us in this way, so we should love one another. And this is how we know that we abide in him, because he has given us, Father, you have given us your spirit. Father, we love you. We are far more grateful that you know us and you loved us first. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.